it may be that something very critical happened from the transition from the subsistence pattern that we've adopted for 99% of our species evolutionary history, the foraging hunter-gathering subsistence pattern. There has to be some sort of consequence when we change to small-scale agriculture. There had to be some sort of effect on sleep and our sleep-wake pattern. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Hello, everyone. Today, I have evolutionary biologist David Sampson on the show, who earned his PhD at Indiana University, and he is now a postdoctorate associate working in the Nunn lab at Duke University. As an evolutionary biologist interested in human evolution, he's currently working or investigating the link between sleep and cognition in primates. This is an area of interest of mine. David has lived in the Tauros and Leaky Wildlife Reserve in Uganda, habituating wild chimpanzees and climbing African ironwood trees, which happened to be a favorite sleeping spot for some leaky chimps. And he does this in order to understand the ape sleep sites better. At the Indianapolis Zoo, he studied the sleep patterns of orangutans and was a part of a team that tested the effects of sleep on touchscreen cognitive tasks. So very interesting. How well do these chimpanzees sleep and how well do they then perform on iPad-like cognitive tasks? Probably some relationship to how we perform. Currently, he's leading similar research projects at Duke Lemur Center, working with the world's largest and most diverse collection of lemurs outside of Madagascar. As a National Geographic grantee, he will be extending his work to one of the last hunter-gatherer groups of Africa, the Hadza. You might remember I spoke about the Hadza in my interview with Dr. Jerry Siegel from UCLA, as well as other small-scale societies. And in his spare time, he practices a medieval martial art and is also part of the Society for Creative Anachronism. Dr. David Sampson, welcome to Human OS Radio. Tell us how you got into your field of research. Interestingly enough, it actually began in my dissertation days at Indiana University. My doctoral supervisor, uh, Dr. Kevin Hunt, he's ran a wild chimpanzee field site out of Uganda since the mid-90s, and I was really interested in chimpanzee material culture originally. So one of the really unique things I discovered when I was looking through the literature in graduate school is that apes have this really bizarre, cool, universal behavior. They all build sleeping platforms, and no other monkey does this, not even the lesser apes, who are phylogenetically very closely related to us, not even the lesser apes, the gibbons. They sleep prostrate on branches. So I was interested in this behavior, and so I went out to Semliki in Uganda and climbed these uh, Sinometra alexandri trees, which is an overwhelming preference for these chimps. And I climbed these trees and try and figure out why they were selecting Sinometra, which is a particular tree species, in an overwhelming majority compared to the other possible species that they had access to. And it turns out that the Sinometra ape nests were biomechanically stronger mm. than the other species and even perhaps repelled insects. Mm. So that was my gateway into being interested in sleep. Um, it was originally just looking at sleeping platforms as a behavior. I have to say, you sound like the next generation of researcher and author Robert Sapolsky from Stanford University. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, that is a pretty big compliment. Uh, yeah, I'll one take of my that heroes. as a compliment. <laughs> but yeah, if you're not familiar with Robert Sapolsky, listener, uh, he's a biologist uh, from Stanford. And not only is he a brilliant scientist, but he's one of the best writers. He's like a mixture of comedy and great science. And so even if you aren't interested in a subject, reading his work is just oh, so yeah, entertaining. I totally agree. I've been a fan for a while. I saw him speak at IU, actually, several years ago. Oh, he's cool. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What makes Sapolsky so great is... His 
his ability to not only immerse himself into the environment of his subjects, so not just studying baboons in a lab or in a zoo, but actually going to Africa, living amongst them for eight months at a time and collecting data on them, but then also being able to come home and translate that into an absolutely captivating story. So if you haven't read one of his books, A Primate's Memoir, which is the story about his travels to Africa and doing his research, you must. It's so entertaining, but it's also so revealing about him as a character, but then also about our physiology. So go out and grab that book right away. Like Sapolsky, you did the hard work too. You put yourself into the environment of these primates to study them in their natural habitat. So why are the great apes sleeping in beds while lower primates aren't? That's the operative question. So that was the second part of my dissertation was coming back home Mm -hmm. and realizing how interesting this behavior was and trying to get at the ultimate causation behind it. And this is what led me to team up with Dr. Robert Shoemaker. He's at the Indianapolis Zoo. He's the vice president of life sciences there. And he's worked with a group of orangutans for decades. And so what we did was we experimentally distributed sleeping materials. I mean, I'm talking pillows, memory foam mattresses blankets, sheets, all these different materials. We distributed it into the enclosure that the orangs were living in. And we didn't have to teach them a thing. They just automatically built these really complex sleeping platforms. And then we had nights where they only had access to straw and we tested their next day cognition. And what we actually discovered was that on nights where they had access to these really plush sleeping platforms, they scored higher on these cognitive tasks with greater accuracy. David, what type of tests were used to test their cognitive performance? So this was a collaboration at Indiana with Tom Shoneman, and he was interested in a question, can orangutans learn artificial grammar? So they were given these touchscreen tasks where you had, say, for example, 10 faces. The orangs learned the sequence, the quote-unquote grammar. Then whenever there was a moment where that pattern was disrupted, say a face was out of place, they would pause and they would then take longer to be able to finish the task. So basically, this was a cool task because not only was it discovering whether or not they can understand artificial grammar and learn artificial grammar, but it was a learning task. And one of the functions of sleep, the proposed function of sleep, is memory consolidation. So this gets at learning itself and bringing it back to sleep when they had those more comfortable sleeping platforms, they they performed with higher accuracy. Well, there you have it. Primates sleep better when they get a good night's sleep on a comfortable mattress. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I Over the last couple of years, I learned a lot about mattresses. I didn't know that much before. And you'd think maybe I would just because I get a lot of questions on that subject. But there was a study by Sean O'Hagan who looked at different mattress types and he had people feel the mattress, select which one they felt would be best for them. And then he had the people actually sleep on the mattress, look at their sleep, and then look at their cognitive performance the next day. And what he found is that people oftentimes choose the mattress that isn't best for them. So we're pretty disadvantaged when we're shopping for a mattress. We don't have the chance to sleep on every one for a couple weeks at a time and then take home the one that's best. Also, your own perception about what's best for you might actually not line up with, you know, you might have a bias that I really love a soft mattress, but you might turn out that a firmer mattress, you might sleep a lot better on it. Mm-hmm. Sure. The tempur can be problematic because they feel good to the hand, but then you end up having higher peak pressure points. So because you sink into the mattress, there's less distribution of body weight, and that can lead to higher heat in certain parts of the body, which can cause mm-hmm. you to w- wake up. And your core body temperature, at least with some kind of small pilot studies, show that it's actually higher across the night. So it's kind of ironic. I wonder if the non-human primates uh, made some of the similar choices that are slightly disadvantaged for choosing the most optimal platform for cognition. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. No, and that, I think that's what the interesting results are, is that it's very clear that they do have a preference. So mm -hmm. the whole critical thing was, what are these preferences? Okay, so primates have preferences for sleeping materials or materials to sleep on. Uh, how long do you think this has been going on for? Absolutely. I think that's a critical question. I think you can safely say that it began with the advent of the first proto-ape. So you can probably take it back to the Miocene, maybe between 14 and 18 million years ago. And I think the critical driver, and this is something I talk about in a recent publication with my colleague here at Duke, Charlie Nunn, one of the big drivers to transition from sort of the limb nest transition was mass. Because you have an ever-increase in mass throughout the Miocene for the past 20, 30 million years in primates as a general rule. And the issue here was that as mass increases, you have a disproportionate increase in volume, right? So they had this huge challenge. They didn't want to sleep in the ground yet, right? Because they're not quite human yet, and they don't have the kinds of defenses on the ground that modern humans have, even in forager and hunter-gatherer groups on the ground. Mm -hmm. So they still wanted to stick in the trees because they didn't want to get eaten at night. But they had to figure out a way to adapt around this ever-increasing mass. And I think the sleeping platform was this innovation. David, describe these platforms for us. What are they like? I couldn't possibly do a better description than Jane Goodall's description going back to the 50s because it's sort of an artifact, right, of chimpanzee behavior. They weren't even habituated yet at Gombe. And she described them as essentially the platforms where you have these frame-supporting branches and you find a crotch in the tree. On average, with chimps in East Africa, it's around 12 meters is the average in height. And they'll find crotches in the tree and they'll bend three to four branches back and then they'll create a weave. And so you have this basic frame, which is sort of like the box spring, right? Yeah, yeah. And then depending on what species, so for example, orangs are particularly fastidious when it comes to this, even in the wild. They'll go as far as 50 meters to find really plush foliage to make a pillow. Wow. Just to bring back to the nest they already made. And sometimes orangs, even more impressive, they'll do double nests where you have a platform on top of the platform that they're sleeping on just so they can stay out of the rain. So it's all like literally this is primitive shelter. Interesting. So are there any differences in sleep yes. for the primates that are sleeping on these platforms versus the primates that are not? Yeah, great question. I did a direct comparison at the Indianapolis Zoo. I did a direct comparison between baboons and the orangs. And so the baboons at the zoo, we even introduced sleeping materials, the same sleeping materials that we did with the orangs, and the baboons completely ignored them. They didn't once mm -hmm. use them. They instead they chose to sleep on their ischial colossus, which was essentially their butt pads, and they huddled together. Which I was staring at, you know, two thousand hours of this infrared video over my dissertation wow. uh, between both these species, and it's just it's incredible. It's like you know when you're on an international flight, it's, it's the difference between first class sleep and economy class. The orangs are getting they're they're in these relaxed, succinct positions. They very rarely sleep together. In fact, only once throughout the entire study with the orangs were they within one meter proximity. And they weren't sleeping on the same platform. They built their own independent platforms. As to where with the baboons, they huddled together, and they're not sleeping. I mean, every once in a while, they'll sleep on their sides, but mostly they're sleeping on their butts, sitting in an upright position. And they're huddled together. And when a high-ranking baboon breaks the huddle, everyone scatters. It's like a domino effect. So it's the difference between sort of economy sleep, where you're always upright, and this relaxed first-class sleep that apes are privileged to have. So compared to the orangutans, the baboons sound like they sleep in a heightened state of readiness and therefore have more shallow sleep. Absolutely. And you're hitting an important point is that to be in this 
state where your arousal threshold is lower, you need to be in the first stages of non-REM sleep. So stage one and stage two, because these are the lowest arousal thresholds. The really interesting and the most important parts of sleep from our perspective, the slow wave sleep, that deep non-REM and the REM sleep that are attributed essentially to memory consolidation, attention, working memory, decision-making, visual motor performance, cognitive control of emotion, all these things are attributed to slow wave sleep and REM. And this is the stuff that you can't get when you're constantly in this light non-REM stage sleep. Tell me if I'm wrong here. Their central nervous systems are adapted to maybe have adequate vigilance during the day with the shallow sleep, Mm -hmm. but they're not also doing the higher order cognitive processing that allows for more sophisticated cognitive thinking. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. There's a clue for the evolutionary advantage for sleeping on these platforms and having the ability Mm -hmm. to deeper sleep. Yes. Nice. So that makes a lot of sense. So I'll try another statement at this. These great apes that were able to create these platforms get deeper sleep. Potentially, this could have been part of the reasons why brains developed more past other types of primates. Yeah. And this leads into that recent paper that Charlie and I published in Evolutionary Anthropology. We were shocked, actually. It was really surprising when we discovered that if you do an analysis of every primate, of all the primate total sleep times, sleep quotas, non-REM, REM, that have yet to be published. When you do that analysis and you control for phylogeny, which is the evolutionary related relatedness between species, when you control for phylogeny, humans actually have the least amount of total sleep time, yet we have the greatest proportion of REM jammed into that total sleep time. Mm. So that was a really exciting discovery, and I think it plays into this whole narrative we're developing right here in terms of the advantages of human-type sleep relative to, to other primates. Okay, so we're talking about the differences in depth of sleep amongst different primates and how that can possibly have been a contributing factor to the different cognitive capacities between us primates, but it makes me think of the executives and the students that are carving into their sleep time to get more hours in the day to do work and how there's probably some pretty serious consequences to that. Given the importance of these sleep stages, slow wave sleep and REM sleep in cognitive performance. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little bit of a softball question there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) From that work, what are the next questions that you're looking to evaluate further? Well, I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be a sleep researcher. There's been new advances in technology, in particular actigraphy, which allows us to be able to analyze sleep in dynamic field environments in pre-industrial populations and in, in developing countries, places that simply were not represented in our sample of what is human sleep before the advent of this technology. So one of the one of the things that we're doing now is we're working in a population in Madagascar, in a remote village of Mendena, in the Sava region of Madagascar, and it's a non-electric population. And they're a small-scale agricultural population. So it's not fully developed and it's non-electric. And so we wanted to see what sleep looked like in this population. And I think this is a particularly important question because right now there's a lot of attention drawn to this concept of first sleep and second sleep. And I think in past podcasts, you've talked to different researchers that are interested in this question. Eckert is a historian and he saw all this evidence in the European literature of a first sleep and a second sleep, and even some evidence in equatorial populations of exhibiting this first sleep and second sleep. And so we wanted to tackle this question in this population and look to see what their prevalence of napping was, what their prevalence of nighttime significant biologically relevant nighttime wake bout or arousals were at night. And we wanted to be able to build that data set for comparisons to Western populations. David, I can't wait to see what you find. 
we're basically, we're pretty much ready to submit this work. And I just gave a talk at the AAPA's, um, it's an anthropology conference in Atlanta. And what we found is that they're relying on segmented sleep a lot. It looks like they can be characterized as a population that has segmented sleep. For example, if you look at the averages across the entire study population of people that were engaging in the agricultural process, right? They're going out into the fields every day, planting rice and working in that small scale agricultural uh, capacity. And nine out of 10 days they napped, mm. which is pretty crazy when in the West, in a recent publication, I found it, they did a large survey of Westerners and they said that 46% of people reported in the survey reported two or more times that they nap per month. Yeah. And so our perception of what a lot of napping is, is I think a little bit skewed compared to what other cultures across the world and across the globe um, consider is normal napping even. I was a little surprised by Jerry Siegel's findings from his 2015 paper in Current Biology. Mm -hmm. This is the paper that I interviewed him about in one of the first episodes of Human OS. So you can go back, listener, and listen to that episode to hear more. But just as a reminder, he evaluated the sleep patterns of three different natural living communities. The Hadza, living in northern Tanzania, two degrees south of the equator. The San, people of Kalahari Desert, living 20 degrees south of the equator. And then the Chamani, that live close to the Maniki River in Bolivia, which is about 15 degrees south of the equator. Anyway, one of the questions that he and his research team explored is whether these pre-industrial societies take naps. Yes. So I should say that the way that naps were recorded was by these people wearing actographs, which are watches that look at motion and light over a 24-hour period. And these types of devices are really optimized to record nighttime sleep, not really daytime naps. But they were still able to look at episodes during the day that they felt constituted the possibility of a nap. And that means that typically there was just very little movement for at least 15 minutes. And then they would mark that as being an, a nap. So his team calculated that naps probably were occurring in around 7 to 10% of afternoons during the winter and 22% of afternoons in the summer. But he recognized that this method was probably over-capturing naps. And so in their estimate that he felt that naps were actually occurring with less frequency than what these figures suggest, so possibly as low as 3% during the winter. But if a nap did occur, the average nap length was about 32 minutes. So that's different from your findings. And to me, what that suggests is that if both are right, yeah. then it shows that there is a variety of ways in which Homo sapiens can sleep well. One of those is to get a daily nap, and the other one is to have just consolidated sleep at night. So I don't know if one is right and the other one is wrong. I've kind of come to the temporary conclusion that both seem to be possibilities for healthy sleep in, in humans. And I'd like to just say that there was a lot of interesting things about his study. Uh, you know, couples that stand out is that hunter-gatherers don't sleep more compared to Westerners, but actually are on the lower end of the spectrum for sleep time. They didn't go to bed when the sun goes down and wake up, as some have estimated, but rather they would go to bed three to four hours after the sun went down, and they would wake up about an hour before sunrise, and that this sleep initiation and morning awakening were not correlated with light, but in fact, changes in core body temperature. And speaking of temperature, but this time environmental temperature, I thought this was really interesting. If you think about how many modern humans sleep, they sleep in a temperature-controlled environment. So it's the same temperature across the night, and it's possibly a temperature that is too high to allow the body to get into the depth of sleep needed for maximal sleep efficiency. Absolutely. We're just at the beginning of exploration in terms of these questions. And I should say the second all that, I think it's really interesting from the Madagascar data, we also found that uh, their circadian amplitude, so the strength of their circadian rhythm is actually much stronger than compared to Western population, which is a critical component. I mean, we're disconnected 
from our environment given the institutionalized shielding we have from it every day? This is a critical question. I suggest that people run a sleep experiment themselves, the purpose of which is to get in touch with, with what really good sleep feels like. You can get a lot of sleep in one night and feel not so yeah. good the next day. And so I, I want people to run it for a couple of weeks, really control light environment, getting adequate daylight during the day, keeping lights very dim in the night. I recommend people get complete sleep. So what that means yeah. is not setting an alarm in the morning, but getting enough time in bed where you can wake up naturally versus have by an alarm and running that for a few weeks and seeing how you feel. And if you can connect with a different feeling, then maybe that'll motivate you to kind of maintain good practices around your sleep habits. But what I've noticed myself, to come back to what you were saying, is that when I am getting really good sleep, I notice much more robust alertness during the day. And then when I mm -hmm. get sleep, I go from being alert to when I'm sleepy, it's like lights out, you know? Yeah. And then I think I get more deeper sleep and I sleep more heavily. And recognizing that is good to connect with that feeling. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know, for all the work you've done on sleep, how have you modified your own sleep habits? You know, it's interesting. When I first went to the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, this was my first academic position. I was a visiting assistant professor there. They had me teaching a 4-4. A 4-4 is essentially four lectures, four different independent classes that you're teaching per semester. And this is double the national average. It was a lot of teaching. Wow. And so I was I was working 70-hour weeks. I was still getting publications out. Jeez. And I'd just been reading the literature on first sleep and second sleep. So I don't know how conscious this was, but I ended up adopting a biphasic pattern where I would do my double lecture in the morning and then take a good 45 minute to an hour power nap afterwards because I was so exhausted. I'm a pretty energetic lecturer. So I throw a lot into it. And then I usually end up being really tired afterwards. Yeah. And I would take an hour long nap and then I would drink coffee at you know 3 p.m. or whatever and I would work until really late I would usually sleep three hours wake up a little bit more read work a little bit and then go to sleep some more and then repeat the process again so I felt like I naturally sort of took on a, a biphasic pattern during those days the author blogger Tim Ferriss popularized something called polyphasic sleep several years back yeah yeah so let me just describe what polyphasic sleep is it is the idea of getting short bursts of naps to replace a longer consolidated sleep period. It was used in the military to help soldiers who didn't have adequate time to get complete sleep do better on cognitive performance tasks like flying planes, etc. And this was interpreted to say, well, if you need eight hours per night, maybe we could reduce that to, let's say, four hours or less overall over the 24-hour period by doing these short little naps. A lot of people adopted it, but it's problematic. Yes, you can do better if you're only getting two or three hours of sleep by taking shorter naps here and there, but that doesn't mean that you can reduce total sleep need by sleeping in this pattern. And I think this brings us back to a more like sort of what we were talking about with Gandhi Yedish and, and Jerome Siegel's discovery of the, the traditional pre-industrial populations where they found they had more consolidated sleep and they didn't see this sort of segmented pattern. From the data that we've got in Madagascar, we're seeing this evidence for significant wake bout. In fact, one out of every two nights, there's a significant wake bout in this population. And it's getting me thinking, and there's something I'm going to articulate in the publication, that perhaps it was once we began this quote-unquote enforced workday, maybe that's when putting demands at sort of a top-down demand on human sleep-wake pattern Maybe this is somehow involved as well in the story and the narrative of segmented sleep. Hunter-gatherers, as a rule, don't work that much. Yeah. I think there was a study that, that published that they work about 20 hours a week. 
if you look at their actual work hours, and when they do it is on their own time. It may be that something very critical happened from the transition from the subsistence pattern that we've adopted for 99% of our species' evolutionary history, the foraging, hunter-gathering subsistence pattern. There has to be some sort of consequence when we change to small-scale agriculture. There had to be some sort of effect on sleep and our sleep-wake pattern. I think this is a a really exciting time to be asleep researcher and, and to help probe these really interesting questions and ask some critical predictions from these hypotheses that are, are getting out there now. You know, a big part of what I do is trying to figure out how to optimize lifestyle to optimize productivity and performance. And some people mm-hmm. bristle at the idea of trying to optimize productivity because it feels like something that's being forced upon them by an employer. But the way I look at it is the ability to actually enter into flow states more easily to get done a task that you're trying to do with efficiency. That means stepping away from your work when you're feeling tired, being able to nap versus just trying to chug down another cup of coffee to, you know, modify, not sitting in a chair all day, but actually standing and thinking about how to augment blood flow to the brain and cognition just through physical activity. We're going to see a really big change in the way that we work over the next 20 to 15 years when the data supports better performance when you ease off a little bit of making somebody sit in a chair for 12 hours a day. Absolutely. And in fact, I think that change, you're saying 15, 20 years, I agree that it'll really, in terms of our cultural norms, it's going to change. But already, corporations are figuring this out. So Google has these sleep pods now where they basically are acknowledging that not everyone has the same chronobiology. We're, some of us are larks, some of us are owls, and this trait is actually highly heritable. It's up to 80% heritable. So uh, I think once corporations figure out that their employees are going to work better if you let them work when they feel like they're going to need to work or they can have the greatest optimization in their work, then they're going to start making better bottom lines and everyone's happier. It's funny. Some of the companies that are really leading the way in terms of pushing technology like Google and others, Mm -hmm. they're the ones that are at the forefront of adopting these technologies for their employees. What I was thinking is more kind of the mainstream adoption, cultural adoption, where it's actually normal for people to be able to say, okay, when do I work best? How do I schedule my day so that I can handle all the things in my life, get all my work done as efficiently, effectively, and as best as possible? That, I think, is going to take a little bit more time, but I'm excited to see that the conversation has started, that the research is looking at it specifically, that people are kind of evangelizing that it's a topic that we should focus on, and then, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully more and more people will have access to the flexibility to do it. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, we are at 30 minutes here, so thank you so much for joining and sharing your work. Fascinating stuff. Definitely learned some really interesting things to augment my understanding of kind of the evolutionary aspects of sleeping platforms and how that might have led to brain development. And I'm really excited to read the next aspect of your work. So maybe we could bring you back on to talk about that when it's published and you're, you're free to talk about it. Absolutely. That'd be great. Okay, everybody. Thank you for listening to Human OS Radio. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.